This morning we continue our way through 1 Corinthians and find ourselves in the middle of 1 Corinthians 10. And again, the title of this morning's sermon is taken from the first words of our text, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And we've heard this call to flee before. He called us earlier in the book to flee from sexual immorality. And now, much related, to flee from idolatry. We will remember the context of where we are here in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul has been dealing with particular questions that the Corinthians have written to him about, remembering the fact that all the Corinthians are new believers, essentially, right? They're first-generation Christians for the most part. Um, the gospel has just penetrated this frontier of, of the kingdom. And th- they're working it out. They're working out the, the language of uh, the, the, the application, if you will, of even Romans chapter 12, that we should not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of our minds. What does it mean not to be conformed to the world? Um difficult for them. They're trying to sort it out. What things of the world can we keep? What things do we have to be suspicious of? What things do we just have to drop like a hot potato and run away? Um, And so they've been asking all sorts of questions, sometimes not asking questions. Sometimes Paul has just called them out on things, uh, suing one another, for example, and uh, things like that. But what we're in the middle of here is an extended uh, question of how do we handle pagan rituals? And, and not that they were anxious to go back and worship in pagan temples. They were not. They were, they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, so much of the Corinthian world, so much of the Greco-Roman world revolved around these pagan temples. I mean, literally social events revolved around them. They were involved in them. Um, uh, business, the, the trade guilds and so forth were very much centered around so many of these pagan rituals. And so it was very difficult for them to sift out of their civic life, just regular Corinthian life, to sift out from there the the paganism and keep their Corinthianism, like to keep their Greekness, to keep their their civic life, their jobs, their careers, uh, their communities, their friends. Uh, What did it mean? So those are the questions they're asking, like, are we still allowed to eat in a pagan temple? Because many times the pagan temples are where gatherings would happen. Again, business meetings might happen there. Guild meetings might happen there. Social events would happen there. Can we do that? Is it okay to participate in this? Much less, are we able to purchase meat in the market? Most of the meat in Corinth would have been butchered by the local temples and in the purpose for the purpose of sacrificing it to idols, can we purchase that meat? Is that meat tainted? Um, these are just really practical questions, and they were, I think, what's helpful. Though, the, though the Corinthian issues are not uh, um, Westchester or New York or American issues. Nonetheless, what they remind us is that the gospel, the gospel, needs to be worked out in the daily things of life. Paul devotes a pretty long letter here to dealing with very practical issues. And right at the outset, I think it's worth us contemplating the fact that Christianity is not merely a set of ideas. It's not merely a belief system, right? It's not merely a worldview, but it's something that works itself out in the humdrum of life, 
in the daily decisions that we have to make. Those decisions matter and they're worth reflecting on. They're worth approaching God on to say, Lord, give me wisdom as how to navigate uh, these things that are for me just the normal way of doing American life. Let's also remember that it's easy as Americans to look and see the Corinthian problems and say, well, yeah, those seem obvious. And I think it would be pretty easy for a Corinthian to look at the Americans and say, "Mm -hmm, yeah, I can see your problems from a mile away. But sometimes we're so up close to them, like looking at a looking at a, a, a Monet painting, you know, right up close, you see blotches of color. And very hard to distinguish what I'm looking at. And it takes some distance to get away from it, to look back, ah, and see what the painting is. That is one of the reasons we come and study Corinthians. This is the reason you study the scriptures, because they draw you away from the American culture. And here we are looking at the Corinthian culture, so that we may turn around from this distance now and look back at our American culture and see it for what it is. We may see things we didn't see before. So I want to encourage us to this, right? American Idols, not that that's a, that's a, a name of a show as well, but American Idols, um, again, are camouflaged in, in contemporary culture. So we really need God's, we need God's wisdom and vision to see it. Okay, so in, in verse 14, now Paul has literally just come off this warning. You'll remember last week, Paul has given this warning to them. He points back to the Old Testament. He says, hey, Corinthians, let's look back. I want to tell you the stories of the Old Testament. Maybe they're familiar with some of them. Maybe they're not. Again, these are Gentiles. So even the Old Testament stories are stories they're having to learn. But he he looks back and says, look at them in the Old Testament. They were not different than us. Look at them. They were baptized. Sure, it was an Old Testament type of baptism. They went through the waters of the Red Sea and were baptized into Moses. That is, Moses led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, on their way to the promised land. But let's just call that baptism, uh, he says. And not only were they baptized, but they ate of the same spiritual food and drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank from that rock, which was Christ. So they they were, he's saying what he's doing is he's pointing to the, to the uh, Old Testament Israelites and he's saying, they were like you. See how they were in the same place as you are. Okay, so what became of them? Well, verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased and they were scattered in the wilderness. So then he goes on to say, don't be like them then. Right, this journey, this covenantal journey between Egypt and the promised land, which again is a type typical of our Christian lives, moving from slavery to sin, if you will, onto the promised land of new creation, crossing over the Jordan of death into new creation, that 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 journey is fraught with peril. The in-betweens of Egypt and the promised land is a place called the wilderness. And it's a place filled with temptation and trial and want and enemies. And it's a journey and it's hard and you've got to follow your Moses. You've got to continue to lean upon your God. You've got to eat the bread from heaven. You've got to drink from that rock and you've got to guard yourself from idolatry. So don't be like them. Do you see them in the Old Testament, these types? Don't be like them. They committed sexual immorality. They became idolaters. And as such, they died in the wilderness. 
Now it's on the heels of that now, that warning that he gives to them, that he turns in verse, verse 14 with the therefore. And that's why it's always hard to jump into the middle of a Pauline letter almost anywhere because he's always saying therefore or that is or so then. And so he's just got a running, beautiful, long argument. But now we know the therefore we're reminded. Therefore, in light of that, my beloved, again, I think that's worth even pausing on, again, because the Corinthians in some ways are so obnoxious, right? There's so many problems with this group and we're going to see it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse but he loves these people, right? He's like a father to them. He had already said that. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, remember, the, the issue that we're dealing with has been one of eating and drinking. So don't be surprised when now we turn to the eating and drinking. But Paul is going to be challenging them about going into the pagan temples and participating even civically in these things that are idolatrous. The food itself is not idolatrous. He's already said that. Meat is meat. And we know that idols in that sense are nothing, right? They're, they're, the, these gods are nothing. These false gods that they worship, they are nothing. Nonetheless, Paul has been calling them as a matter of wisdom to stay away. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. So here's why. Paul is going to give two examples. He's going to lean on two other meals as the justification for his argument that you ought to flee from these things. If idolatry is happening, don't flirt with it. That's what he's saying. So, so you, know, you know what they are doing in this meal. And I'm telling you, run away. He, he doesn't say specifically here at this point that, again, eating this meat itself is sinful. But what he's saying is run away. If you go back to the context immediately before, you'll see in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so right at the outset with this language of fleeing, he's saying, look, when you're presented with an opportunity, when you're presented with what very well could be temptation, when you are presented with this idolatry, that's the time to turn and run. Run away. He even uses the language, a way of escape. But it's our nature to think we can navigate it. You know, we can, we can navigate our way through these temptations. We can navigate our way through the idolatry. You know, we're mature enough. We can, we're subtle enough. We can distinguish these things. And we put ourselves in dangerous, uh, in dangerous territory. But Paul is telling the Corinthians, get the heck out of there flee. Why? I'll give you two examples, he says. Let's look at two other meals and think about what's happening. So you're wanting to go to this pagan temple and partake in this meal because after all, it's just meat. It's just drink. Well, let's think about the meal in our, not temple, but our churches. We also have a religious meal. Is it just a meal? Is it just bread? Is it just wine? Is it just us having sitting down and having a drink together? 
so that anybody could come in and just sit and fellowship and have this meal. It's just a couple of friends just sharing a glass of wine, breaking bread together. Well, of course, we know that's not the, the what's happening. And Paul is reminding them. So he, in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Uh, some some uh, translations will say participation. Partici- is the is the 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 uh, cup that we drink not participation in the blood of Christ? Is the bread that we break not participation in the body of Christ? Fellowship, participating, sharing together. When we come together for communion, he's speaking about the communion meal in church, and this, by the way, is why we call it communion. Right? It's called all kinds of things. It's called the Eucharist. It's called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. But it's also called communion. Well, why? Because as we come together for this meal, something is happening. We are, we are being united together by the Spirit in the bread and in the wine. We're sharing in something. We're sharing in the finished work of our Savior. Now again, later in 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to we're going to dive back into the Lord's Supper and we'll spend some more time in thinking about what is exactly happening here. But Paul, I think, at least the first time he mentions the Lord's Supper here, reminds us this is not merely just individuals getting together and eating bread themselves. Something else is happening when we partake of the Lord's Supper. There is a communion happening. There's a fellowship being formed. There is a participation that we are having in one another and in Christ. So there is, if you will, a vertical and a horizontal participation that is happening as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is not magic, but this is mystery, no doubt. But this is what the scriptures tell us is happening in the Lord's Supper. Now we know, we we can go... We know when we talk about the sacraments, and we'll again, we'll deal with this more in 1 Corinthians 11, we can fall in one of two ditches. One ditch we can fall in with, with the, the sacraments is to say they are merely just symbols. They are not doing anything. It's just a remembrance device. We think about this, you know, uh, our, our generally, uh, generally it tends to be our Baptistic friends, our Baptistic brothers who kind of err on this side. They focus on the phrase, do this in remembrance of me, which is a good phrase to focus on because Jesus said it. But nonetheless, the Lord's Supper just becomes elements that are just tokens to, mem- to you know, mnemonic devices. They're to trigger our memory and help us in these forms remember what Jesus did. And certainly they do have that effect. I believe what Paul is saying is the Lord's Supper is more than that. On the other hand, we can fall into the other ditch, the ditch that the Roman Catholics tend to fall into. And that is that the bread and wine, in fact, stop being bread and wine and actually themselves now physically become the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are transubstantiated. Their substance is trans, changed into something else. And we don't fall into that ditch either. But rather, within the Reformed tradition, we walk a middle ground that says, while, of course, these things are mnemonic, they do remind us 
of something. At the same time, something is happening as we partake of these, of these elements of bread and wine. That as we do, we are by the Holy Spirit participating in something. We are participating in Christ. That is, we are feeding our souls. Calvin, Calvin said that the Lord's Supper is medicine for our souls. That as we eat physically, so our souls are feeding upon the finished work of Christ. As we literally ingest and digest the bread, we are saying, and by faith, what is happening is our souls are digesting, feeding upon the finished work of our Savior. We are enjoying the benefits of our Savior's death. That that's literally happening as you partake it. It's not just that your mind is remembering something. Jesus didn't just give us pictures to look at. He gave us a meal to eat. You eat something. You ingest something. You digest something. You hold something. You taste something. You smell something. You share something. We all partake from the one loaf, as Paul says. So this is important. It's not, this is, this is not merely a meal. It is a meal. But something is happening in this meal by faith. And that's why it's very important that only Christians partake of it. That's why we fence the table as we come to the Lord's table, because it's inappropriate then for a non-believer to join in this meal because something is happening. And the only ones who can have that participation with Christ are those who are united to him by faith. If not, it's a dangerous thing, right? And Paul's going to go on to say later in this book, you then eat and drink judgment on yourself. You're, you're eating and drinking death. Look at the elements. It's broken body and spilled blood. Those are the, those are the elements that are portrayed before you as you partake of the Lord's Supper. But in Christ, their life, because they are the blood than the body of our Savior. So we have a vertical participation. But Paul is saying even more than that, or on top of that, not more than that, but add to that, there is a horizontal participation that's happening as we come together and take the Lord's Supper. That, that is the communion, and hence the name communion. That we are fellowship. Something is happening to us as the body of Christ as we all share this meal, not only even here at this church, but as we partake of this meal, we partake of that bread that our brothers and sisters are taking of all around the world and have taken together through the centuries. And Paul makes that point. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or participation of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of the one bread. That what we're doing as we partake in communion is we together, regardless of our gifts and abilities, regardless of our background, regardless of our ethnicity, regardless of our gender, regardless of our age, together we all come here as complete equals with nothing in our hands to bring and we draw from that one loaf and we eat together. And as such, acknowledging as we all eat from that one loaf, we acknowledge that our identity, all of our identities, again, are not found in my last name, Spanger. They're not found in my ethnicity. 
They're not found in my age. They're not found in my gender. They're not found in my career. My ultimate identity is found there, in that loaf, in that bread, in that body, in Christ. That's what Paul is saying. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, what is being said is, this is our identity. This is our unity. What am I? I am a Christian. To know me, to understand me, is to understand that loaf of bread. That that is who I am. I am one who is united to that one whose body was broken for me and whose blood was spilled out. And that's not true for me. If you want to understand me, you got to understand them. Because we together are one body. We're going to come to this again. Paul, all these little things Paul is is laying, if you will, little time bombs in the text because he's going to come back to communion. He's going to open this example back up in 1 Corinthians 11. He's going to come in 1 Corinthians 12 and and on to the role of the body. He's He's going to expand this image. What does it mean that we are one body? And hence our reading today from Romans chapter 12 where Paul makes that point as well. Part of not being conformed to the pattern of this world is not conforming ourselves to the idea that we are all little individual entities. We tend to be the little centers of our own universe. But Paul in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, in Romans 12 and here in 1 Corinthians pushes away from that. No, we are one body. We are one body. What are we doing here in this church? We are not little marbles in a bag, a bunch of disassociated entities who all happen to have something in common. Paul says it's much more organic than that. We all come from one loaf. Our identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true, objectively, and it is manifested through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. As we eat together, acknowledging that our identity is found in the broken bread and in this poured out wine, the poured out blood of Christ. So Paul is saying, flee from idolatry. Be careful of these pagan rituals. Be careful of these meals that, sure, I get it. It's just meat, but something else is going on there. If you want an example of that, look at our meals. (laughs) This is much more than just bread. Ah, There's nothing sinful about bread. There's nothing... I know, but in the sacrament, in the ordinances, in the ceremonies, it's much more than bread that we partake of. We partake of Christ and we partake of one another. We participate in one another. So be careful what you participate in. And then he draws back to the Old Testament. Observe Israel after the flesh. The Old Testament stories I just told you about. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? That is, they were the same thing. They found their identity in the, in the very sacrifice. That lamb that was laid there on the altar was them. It was them. That's, that's, what, the, that's what the sacrifices represented. The, the sacrifices were representations of them. They were partakers of the altar because it represented them. It was their representative, and they all shared in it. They all saw themselves being sacrificed in the death of that lamb, but through a representative, just like we do in Christ. And then they ate the Passover meal. What were they eating? Is it just lamb? 
No, they were partaking of that one that was a substitute for them. And by it, they were remembering their We are the Passover people. We are those who once were slaves in Egypt and had been brought free by the powerful hand of God. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's what unites us. That's our story. Isn't That's not just a meal. That's a communion. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a formation of identity for the people of God. Which then provokes the question in verse 90, wait, Paul, are you, are you comparing the meals at these pagan temples to communion? Like we, the, the God we worship actually exists. Haven't we just said their gods are nothing? So what their meal literally is just a meal. They might think it's to something, but we believe it's to nothing. Okay, that's a fair that's a fair response to Paul's. And Paul anticipates it. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Ooh, okay. So Paul, Paul says, yeah, you're exactly right. Their gods are nothing. Those gods do not exist. Nonetheless, and I think this is, this is the statement that requires a little uh, contemplation and requires us to take it home with us. Because what Paul is saying, sure, idols are nothing. The gods of the Romans and the Greeks are nothing. But behind those gods are demons. The demonic world delights in your idolatry. The demonic world is happy to encourage that idolatry. That when you sacrifice to the idols, when you pursue idols, sure, the idol is nothing, but Paul is linking them to the principalities and powers. Or happy to do anything and, and encourage you in any way away from sacrificing glory to God. And I say this requires contemplation because now it ramps up the game on our idolatry. Our idolatries are not just quirks. Our idolatries, the things, and we all have them in here. Again, John Calvin's quote is one you just should tattoo on your brain and on your soul. He said, we are by nature idol factories. It's what we do. We crank out idols. We can make idols out of anything and we do. Even things that are good even things that are true and that are beautiful. Things that are meant to draw our attention to God, we can pervert and distort even Christian things. Because once they're detached from God, once they cease to be conduits to the glory of God and become ends in and of themselves, they become idols. Even good, God-glorifying things can become idols. And Paul is saying, Idols are connected to demons. They're conduits, if you will, to the demonic world. And Paul is saying, I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. That's what's at stake here. Not that we honor, that we think their gods are actually doing something. Oh, no, we may get on the wrong side of, you know, of this Roman god or that Roman god. But you are flirting with something much more dangerous in participating in idols. And then here in verse 21 the stark contrast that he brings us to. And this is the and this is the this is the contrast of the entire Bible, right? You are either with God or against him. 
you're either with, you know, again, think about our study in the book of Revelation, all those contrasts, right? The lamb or the beast, God or the dragon, you know, Babylon or Zion, the harlot or the bride. I mean, it's just, it's stark in the contrast. And here again, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord, you know, basically saying, or would we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do you want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's the question he's asking. Would you? Is that what we desire, to provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Do you do you want to take the Lord on with this? Of course, these are rhetorical, silly questions. I, you do not. So flee. Run away from the table of demons. Develop a... Develop a sensitivity to idolatry, like the sensitivity your ears have to nails on chalkboard. We hear that and we cringe. Even the thought of it right now is making me cringe. I can hear it, you know. And just the thought of the nails on chalkboard makes us cringe. And Paul is saying, develop that. Pray for that with regards to idolatry so that you can sniff it out. And then flee. Hear it and run. Because we cannot have, we cannot be married to Christ and flirt with other gods. We cannot eat at the table of the Lord and at the same time be picking on the table of demons because we like some of what's over there as well. We, we're just picking. We're not eating. We're just picking a little bit. from. You're at one table or the other. And again, let me close by bringing us back to our word of exhortation and to our confession of sin this morning. We should all be broken by this. We should all be trembling. We should all think, oh no. Oh no, because I do eat at the table of demons. I do pick from the table of idolatry. We all have our little idols that we like. And we know we need to get rid of them, but you know what? We're, we've got them under control right now. I think of, you know, C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce with the, you know, if, you, if you're familiar with that, with the, the guy toward the end, he's got the red lizard on his on his shoulder. And in order to in order to go to heaven, he's got to give the lizard away, you know, but the lizard is lost or, you know, whatever. And the angel who comes to him and says, come on, I'll take you into heaven. He says, okay, great. He says, but you got to give me the, you got to give me the lizard first, you know? And the lizard's whispering in his ear, you know, don't, if you get rid of me, you know, you'll die. You can't live without me. And, and the guy, the guy says back to the angel, no, no, no. He says, I've, I've got him under control now. You know, he'll be fine now. I've got him. He, 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 he knows that he can't continue to do what he's been doing. And we, we've got, we've got an arrangement here. And that, and the angel says, no, you've got to give me the lizard. Let me have him. Trust me, it will be life to you. And he says, no, if you take this lizard from me, it will kill me. And it's a wonderful back and forth about him not wanting to give up this idol, this idol of lust for him. And what happens when he does, and I won't ruin it for you, it's a great point in that story. But this is what we tend to do. We tend to think we have our idols under control. They're manageable. It's not killing me. I can nibble over here and still enjoy a full meal at the table of the Lord. And Paul is saying, you cannot flee, rip it off and give it away and delight in the table of the Lord. And inasmuch as we need to repent, let us repent. 
And as we said in the confession of sin, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom there is full and free forgiveness. But let us delight in him and turn ourselves to him and feast upon him and him alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the table that has been prepared for us. Father, a table of great bounty, a table that is so delightful that it should remove any taste we have for the the weak offerings of the table of demons. And yet, nonetheless, we confess our weakness. We confess our flirtatious eye that continues to flirt with idols. Father, teach us the severity of these things. Give us, by your Holy Spirit, the strength to flee, lest we flirt with the devil. And Father, forgive us, we pray, for our sins. And we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, who in giving his body and blood has given it that he might remove from us all the stains of our sinful adulteries. We thank you for that and for our identity together in him. It is our hope and it is our life. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen.